He was certainly a person that night who was out of control. How are you doing tonight? And it was a day of reckoning. Where are you coming from, man? And then the question became, who do I really want to be? Where are you coming from right now? As a public figure. Do you know where you're at right now? As an athlete, and I think most significantly, as a father. Have you been drinking tonight? No. No? And I think he reached bottom, and I think that's when the second life of Tiger Woods uh, began. For the last three decades, the chapters of Tiger Woods' life have played out in front of us. Mostly, they've been inspirational, but not always. Who has Tiger become now, and what can we learn from him? I'm Dylan DeChair, and this is The Drop Zone. So we're here with Michael Bamberger, the author of The Second Life of Tiger Woods. This is uh, roughly your seventh or eighth book that you've released, Michael. Is that about right? We're here with Dylan DeChere, the inventor of Muni Monday. <laughs> Held in equal esteem to uh, your new Tiger Woods book. Michael, in brief, when did you first see, meet, or become interested in Tiger Woods? I definitely started reading about him when he was, you know, a young teenager. Like anybody who would have subscribed to Golf World would have known that name once he started winning those three U.S. juniors. He was a thing for sure. Uh, I didn't see him live in person. I would have seen him on TV, but I didn't see him live in person until he's won three USAMs, as you know, the second of them at uh, Newport Country Club. What setting more fitting for the USGA centennial anniversary than its competitive birthplace? Newport Country Club, where 100 years ago, the first national amateur championship was played. And I was a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer at the time. He was playing a man named Buddy Marucci uh, in the final, who later became a Walker Cup captain. So I went to Newport on that Sunday. I was going to write a Buddy no matter what he did. But in my mind, it was like, wow, I get a chance to see Tiger Woods in action. Extended to 18, Woods responded with a spectacular shot one which he says wasn't in his repertoire a year ago. What was interesting about Tiger Woods at that point? The starting point would have to be his unusual background, the fact that is, you know, now we take it for granted, it's not even discussed. I, I would regard that as social progress, that it's not discussed. But then the fact that he had, that his mom was from Thailand, that his father was African-American, that he grew up playing public golf courses, that really was the starting point to the fascination with Tiger Woods because it was so unusual then. Woods told us that from an early age, because of the color of his skin, he had to face the ignorance of some members at certain clubs. Not every day, but uh, every time I go to a major country club, always feel it, you can always sense it. Um, people are always staring at you. What are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. He was an anomaly, so that would have been the, the first most striking thing. And then how he played the game, of course, would have been, you know, 1-1-A one, one for, for me anyway. All right, and then fast-forwarding about 20-something years, when did you first decide to write this book about Tiger Woods? Uh, the BMW event was at Aronimink in the summer of 2018. And given where Tiger was in 2017, and watching him closely at Aronimic, I live in Philadelphia, and I, and, and I did watch it closely, I never thought he'd get to where he was. And at that point, it's like, I, I never would have anticipated. If you would have said to me then, can he win on tour again? I would have said, yes, he could. It'd be hard, but he could. Could he ever win another major? I would have said, no. But I saw enough there is like, wow, whatever he's done to get himself to where he is right now, Aronim in 2018, that alone is worthy of a book. 
If I can give 100% and feel that my best is still good enough to win, then I'll keep playing. If I know that I, I can't put it together anymore like I used to, uh, there's no sense for me to get out there and embarrass myself anymore. And so to be clear, in these kind of off years from whatever you want to call it, 2014 to 2017, say, you didn't think that Tiger Woods would come back to the level of winning multiple events or certainly winning a major. I really didn't. I didn't see it at all. So then once that started to happen, this made you more and more inclined to keep writing and keep thinking about it? Yes, that that is, you know, the, the most insightful thing about Tiger Woods, I think, that I've ever heard comes from Jack Nicklaus, which, you know, in a nutshell would be you can never discount Tiger Woods in any way. He will always surprise you. Uh, he will reinvent himself. He will not stay down. You know, he's Secretariat. He's Babe Ruth. He's Larry Bird. You know, n name your iconic athlete. He's one of the ten in the history of sport when he's down he will rise back up and even when you think oh he's not coming back he's shown what that what nicholas said is correct uh and that is a it's been a thrill for me to be able to cover and write about it since he's a teenager and uh and for you and i both and 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 others who try to write about him it's uh it's the ultimate challenge uh, to try to figure out how it is that he's done what he's done once you've decided to write a book about Tiger Woods, what is the first and most difficult hurdle? Well, there's so many different ways to answer that, Dylan, as you know. You know, he's an unknowable person. He's a very contained person. Uh, he doesn't give up that much in his interviews. For me, not for others, for a few others can't get him. I can't get him one-on-one. -on -one. Um, even if you can get him one-on-one, -on -one, there's only, I think, so deep he's going to be willing uh, t to let you go uh, into what he's actually thinking uh, so so that would be that that would be the uh, that would be the starting point so that strikes me as the biggest challenge but I guess also uh, the highest point of potential right people don't know everything they want to know about him so then they're intrigued to know more well I think that's true and and as you know, you know th there are there are two books that I would put if someone's going to start reading books about Tiger Woods because they're interested in him, there are two books I would put ahead of this one. The first would be Hank Caney's book that he wrote with my friend Jaime Diaz, The Big Miss, because it gets inside Tiger's head as a golfer, and you and uh, which really no other book does. And Haney saw it at very close range, at a closer range than almost anybody except for maybe Earl and uh, his father Earl Woods and, and Butch Harmon. Uh, then the second book would be the uh, Jeff Benedict Armkatean book. It's a biography of, of Tiger called, I think, Tiger. But what Katayan and Benedict's book did was stop at 2018. Uh, so it's a very thorough biography and a very important biography to read if you're interested about Tiger Woods, but it only goes so far. So I feel like I'm sort of picking up where they left off. And Tiger has said in talking about his new forthcoming autobiography, he said that Lots of things written about him in the past have contained uh, mistruths, or I, I can't remember exactly the wording that he used. Do you think that it's fair to say that a lot of the writing about Tiger over the years has been untrue or unfair? No, I don't think that at all. Uh, I, I think that particular sentence, I wish I had it in front of me right now, 
uh, was offensive. Uh, uh, it was offensive to uh, to our colleagues. Uh, uh, Bob Harrig comes to mind. Doug Ferguson, Steve DiMeglio, Karen Krauss. You know, really committed reporters who are out there all the time, trying to be as accurate as they possibly can. And uh, I don't know if Tiger meant it as a slight to them. I don't imagine that he did because I think he's got a lot of respect and, and a good rapport with with those that he named and 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 others as well. But I don't think there's any other way to read that. He probably feels on some level that that is true, that when Johnny Miller says this is what Tiger was trying to do with that shot and and Tiger might very honestly be saying, well, actually, Johnny, I was trying to do this. Um, But that's part of what reporters do is is look at something and give it their best possible interpretation uh and the and the 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 listener the reader has to be uh really sort of just intelligent enough to know that it's through the prism of that person all right so take me then into the reporting process uh you've said it's it's hard to get one-on-one access for tiger woods first of all he declined to really sit down with you for this book which I'm, i'm sure is not a surprise Right. You know, ha- having written about Tiger, you know, for, for a lot of years now, Tiger's greatest gift to a reporter is what he does on the golf course, uh, his body language, his remarks afterwards, which re- which require their own kind of cryptic analysis of uh, of what he's saying. There's what he's saying and there's what does he mean that re- that requires interpretation. It's sort of it takes years to figure out even how to write about uh, uh, this guy, um, and I'm not saying I've I've figured out how to do it because I really haven't, but I know that it's been challenging to try to do it. I'm not sure I'm answering your question there, but that it, everything I'm saying is how I feel. Yeah, but he he doesn't sit down with people essentially for books in general. I've never known him to. He sat down with uh, Bob Harrig, who has a really good relationship with him for a master's uh, a preview piece for the Master's Journal uh, uh, this year. Um, and I'm sure when he writes his autobiography, he'll work with the ghostwriter, and that'll be really interesting to see uh, how deep he's going to want to go. But I think I think he's private by nature, and I think also he's figured stuff out that he doesn't want to share. But as he gets older, he might be more willing to share it. And uh, so his own future as a writer could make you all forget completely about you know uh, this book that I'm publishing now because it might supersede anything that, uh, that that I've written along with the Haney book and the other book as well. I guess what I'm getting to is this: Tiger doesn't talk. He <laughs> he has made it so that his close circle around him also don't talk. So as a reporter, take me through then your entry points into this story. Where do you go uh, to cover someone who's been extensively covered who also doesn't particularly want to be covered right i really get the question and i and uh and i wish i had uh an answer that was better than this but i think the only thing you can really do with tiger woods is watch him you just watch him as closely as you possibly can and i would say this for me or for you for anybody writing about him or for any fan of tiger or any one who's interested in tiger Watch him through the prism of your own experience. Golf Channel has one take on him, and Johnny Miller might have had another, and you might have one, and I might have one. But I think what we can all do as 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 citizen reporters, to, to, to use sort of, sort of new phrase, is watch him and try to interpret him and try to understand him. 
for ourselves because I think he is worthy of the attention because he's done a remarkable thing with his life. He's done a difficult thing at a level that really nobody else has ever really done with very, very few exceptions for a long, long time, often with the odds stacked against him. I am very appreciative of, of it all because uh, I, I don't know, you know, what the what the time timeline is for me. I don't know how many more years I have of doing this at this level. And uh, a year ago, I didn't know if I'd, I'd do this again. So a lot of emotions, a lot of things have, have been very fluid this entire year. And uh, it's just amazing that uh, the support I've, I've gotten, um, I, I've, I probably wouldn't have, have achieved the things I've been able to achieve this year without the support of of all the people and all the fans and they're, they're cheering in there. Because um, I've had bad rounds and I've had bad days where I just didn't play well and they've been so supportive and, and trying to pick me up and uh, trust me, it, it helps. And so for this book, it's called The Second Life of Tiger Woods um, because in a sense it covers this next chapter, this latest chapter of his career, which when does that begin? I appreciate that question, Dylan, because I think I, my own, this is just my own take on it. My feeling is that he won the U.S. Open in 2008. Uh, there was a lot going on in his life. 2009, he had a chance to win the PHA Championship. He didn't. And I, my, own, uh, my own view of 2009, 2008, 2009, uh, through the sex scandal, um, right through Memorial Day 2017, is basically a period of dissent for, for Tiger. And my, my take looking at his life is that the second life of Tiger Woods really begins Memorial Day 2017. Uh, I know ardent fans of Tiger are like, oh, why do you want to bring up this negative stuff? You know, it's just a bad day in his life. It's not my view of it. My view of it was that was the day that he he couldn't escape that day he couldn't blame tabloid media spying on him which he very much could for the for the sex scandal he obviously had a drug issue he was certainly a person that night who was out of control and it was a day of reckoning and then the question became who do i really want to be as a public figure as an athlete and i think most significantly as a father and i think he reached bottom and i think that's when the second life of tiger woods uh, began and I think that that is one of the key theses of your book is that was that may have saved his life to some extent, maybe literally saved his life. I, I do think it literally saved his life. And, and, and one of the reasons one of the reasons to say this and, and you would know this and we've talked about this, but, but others wouldn't was the way the Jupiter Police Department handled him that night um, had a lot to do with everything that followed. Right, right now. OK, I'm placing you under arrest for suspicion of driving under the influence. OK. Do you understand? First off, had they driven Tiger Woods home that night and not arrested him, which of course would 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 be unethical, but it's something that that would have happened and did happen, uh, and ha and still and still happens. Uh, who knows what would the next event would have been like? Could he have killed himself? Could he have killed could could he have killed somebody else if he was in that situation again? Uh, but they 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 treated him with a level of empathy and humanity where he could really sort of recognize his own issues uh, uh, that night. And uh, and I think everything that followed out of that was, I can't continue on this path. 
So once you make that decision in your life, I can't continue on this path, the only other door that leaves is another path. And I think that's what he did. Tell me a little bit about your reporting on that specific subject, um, because it's always a little bit of a fine line when you're talking to police officers about things that have happened. You open actually talking about this incident. Matt Palladino, second year road patrol officer for the Jupiter Police Department is featured. Uh, what's that like going in to get that information? Well, I, you know, I, I hung around the Jupiter Police Department and I, and I talked to police officers there and I got not in the exact squad car that uh, uh, patrol car, I think would patrol vehicle, I think would be the correct term that Tiger was in, but one just just like it. I sat in the back where Tiger sat and I realized and I happen to be claustrophobic, but just to be, you know, the, the, the windows don't roll down. There's a cage in front of you. There's no seats. It's just a hard piece of plastic. And here you are, you're Tiger Woods. You're one of the most famous, powerful people in the world, and you're being detained. You know, you're almost like you're being detained. You, you, uh, because of your own behavior that night, you've lost. You know, a right that we all hold to be to be precious. So, to answer your question, so I, you know, I tried to understand the experience of that night through the Jupiter Police Department. I went to the uh, to the Palm Beach County uh, Jail where he where he spent where he was incarcerated for for a brief period and tried to imagine what that experience was like. My my uh, editor, who, who I think you may know, Joe Ferrari Adler from Simon and Schuster, uh, w- one of his one of his notes to me in writing the book was, "What's it like to be Tiger Woods?" I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life, I hope, as a writer, and apply it to everybody that I write about. I try to write with empathy, no matter no matter who I'm writing about. Uh, I don't think you can have enough empathy as a reporter. Uh, but I tried to understand, I just tried to imagine what it would be like to be Tiger Woods on that Memorial Day evening, coming up 18 at the 2019 Masters, uh, being with his kids after having a chance to win the uh, the Open Championship at um, Carnoustie and not getting it done. What's it like to be Tiger Woods? And in the, in the culture that you grew up in, Dylan, uh, to be a celebrity is to be, in, in my opinion, almost turned into a caricature, something that's cardboard, something that you can discuss. And you can, you, you can apply any words you want to the person on the internet or through Twitter or Instagram, whatever it might be, because they're not a person. They're so famous and untouchable and behind behind some kind of gate that we can say whatever, whatever we want. I don't have that view at all. And what I particularly try to do in this book is try to always remember that Tiger is a son, he's a father, he's a golf professional, uh, he runs a foundation, he runs a business, he has people depending on him, he's dependent on other people, he's a human being on this earth and actually deserves to be reported about as such. Have you found any of his reflections since, say, Memorial Day 2017 uh, or since this comeback to be especially revealing? Very interesting question. And and I think that's where we as Tiger Woods observers have to really read tea leaves. So you have to look really carefully at his language. So like I, and I may be totally wrong about what I'm about to say, I never heard Tiger Woods actually use any form of the word gratitude until 2018. Maybe he did and I just missed it. 
But what I noticed in 2018, 2019, he does actually use the word gratitude uh, in, in its various forms. And there are very few words more powerful than that. Um, when he showed up to, to receive, he was, Tiger's always been good about showing up to receive awards, but uh, by and large, but we'd often just mouth platitudes. Uh, you were at the, were you at the Golf Writers Dinner uh, last year? When he spoke, he, he won the Hogan Award as a player who's overcome an obstacle. And he spoke without notes from the heart about his experience. Uh, it, it meant a lot to me uh, to be able to receive this award after its namesake. Uh, what Mr. Hogan went through and what he did and what he was able to accomplish post um, is truly remarkable. And just to have my name on, on a list of recipients uh, like this is, is truly special. And to all the recipients here for all the work that you have done and either serving the game, participating in the game, growing the game of golf, uh, I say congratulations to all of you. And these are very special people in this room and I'm so honored to be here. So thank you very much. I don't know that he would have been capable of doing that uh, prior to Memorial Day 2017. So you have to look for these little moments and see how much they actually reveal. And then you, you touch on a few different things that I think uh, the Tiger camp would probably not love um, to be out in the open. I think you handle them with empathy, as you said. But this traffic incident in 2017, uh, Tiger's run-ins with the rules in 2013, and then also his connections to performance-enhancing drugs and or a, a cast of characters involved in that entire world. Uh, what what are your considerations when you're going through those topics and figuring out how much to focus on each one as it relates to Tiger's life? Great question, Dylan. And, you know, by I think this is true for every person on this earth. Your own life is a movie. It is a novel. It has ups and downs. It is not a straight line. It has arc. The arc for me of Tiger is from U.S. Open 2008 right through Memorial Day 2017. Is, is a descent, and part of it is there's a desperation to Tiger. Uh, and we see, him, we, we see him responding to his poor shots and poor play with more desperation than he did as a young player. That's unusual. You usually get more mellow over time. But I think that idea of getting to 18 or whatever it was that was in his mind that he wanted to achieve, it seemed to, it seemed to become more outsized and more important to him, and he responded with more emotion, sometimes, in, sometimes inappropriately. Just as a quick aside, the profanity didn't bother me at all. I don't, I've never known any high-strung person in any line of work who didn't use profanity. I think just, it just shows how much you want something. But the spitting did bother me. I think that's a disgusting habit. Uh, you know, If you want to spit discreetly, that's one thing. But to spit on a golf course with some other guy's golf ball, I never really could, could understand. But that was one of the things, uh, whether you use performance-enhancing drugs or not, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. But as you know, Dylan, there's a chapter in the book about a guy who purports, I think, credibly uh, to have uh, sold performance-enhancing drugs to someone who said they were going to deliver them to Tiger. It's not a smoking gun, but it's it's warm-ish. Uh, but I would say that's part of the uh, uh, descent uh, period as well. And then these episodes where he's not fastidious about uh, the rules uh, also speak to character. So I'm not really concerned at all about what Tiger or Tiger's camp is going to say, oh, why is he going down this road? 
I'm writing this for the reader, and I want the reader to understand why I think that whole long period between 2009 right through 2017, including a rehab experience in 2010, another one in 2017, a mental therapy uh, rehab, for lack of a better phrase, uh, I'm trying to explain what the roots are of it, trying to give the reader a glimpse into my take on the arc of Tiger's life, which may or may not be correct, it's, but it is my take. And this may be too personal a question, but did you get, what is the feedback like when you tell Tiger and his team, hey, I'm writing this book about Tiger, and then do you continue to try to get them involved? I told Mark Steinberg, Tiger's agent, about this book early on. He's never been interested in engaging in any conversation really meaningfully. Every once in a while, there's there's been an exception to it. Uh, Tiger is a very small camp. He had a, uh, a right-hand press person named Glenn Greenspan, whom we both know, who, who is now out anyhow. Um, but yes, I tried to keep them into the loop to, to the degree that I thought was appropriate and responsible, uh, but it was, it was a one-way street. And then do you think that the the new tiger, the second life tiger, the guy we've seen the last couple of years. Uh, how much is he different from the tiger that was before? How much is he just presenting himself differently or is there a difference anyway? You know, I can't answer the question honestly, and I would like to know, I would like to know how much media coaching he actually has right now. Of course, that would be the kind of thing that the camp would, uh, uh, would, would never give up. I know it's become popular, especially among casual fans, to say, oh, he's such a different guy now. I don't think he's a, quote, oh, such a different guy now. I think he's a person who's evolving, as you would hope that, that we all are. And uh, I think it's been gradual and incremental um, and subtle. Tiger, welcome back. <laughs> or should I say more appropriately, Welcome home. Yeah. Um, just unreal. And then a lot of this book then focuses around the 2019 Masters, which was such a crowning achievement in his comeback. Are there any particular scenes that you were excited to get more texture about or, or to really paint a more complete picture on? Well, I think he does extraordinary things on the golf course that in the grand scheme of things get lost. Like, for instance, Dylan, I will pose this question to you since you're such a fine golfer yourself and, and an athletic one. I think it's the second round. He hits, he hits a tee shot into the trap on 18, and, it's, and, uh, and the pins, I don't know where the pin is, but there's a big lip there. Have you played Augusta National? Yes. So you know. Um, how many people in the world do you think there are that can hit a seven iron out of that trap and onto the green. I mean, it is such an athletic feat just to be able to do that. Maybe there's 100 people in the world. Maybe there's more than that. There aren't too many in their 40s who can do it. So one of the things I'm trying to do is take a really intense look at some of the remarkable things he did in the uh, in, in that 2019 Masters that the, that the public would know about. His foot slips on 13. You say he thought his right foot slipped. Got away with it. Uh, our colleague Sean Zock and I, and you and I as well, have, t have talked about that. And still, he still his tee shot magically winds up in the fairway, an eight iron away. We were talking about the 1981 Masters earlier, and guys hitting 
you know, Freire Woods and one irons into that, and here he is hitting, hitting an eight iron. So one one of the fun things is to is to go deep on some of the things that would have gotten lost over over time, uh, just any number number of shots, and then beyond that, just some of the quieter moments. Uh, there was a thing on the on, a, on the uh, driving range, whatever they call it, you know, the practice tee, with a lotha ball on the uh, on the Wednesday of the tournament, where they're comparing uh, pitch shots and how you play pitch shots and how pitch shots are different at Augusta National. And uh, if you were observing, and I, you know, talk later about people who who knew what the conversation was about, you could see Tiger spirit rising. That they were seeing enthusiasm out of Tiger. Alatha Ball was seeing enthusiasm to Tiger he had not seen in years, and others who were around that uh, could pick up on it as well. There was a little private conversation between Tiger and Bernhard Langer's caddy. Uh, so what I've tried to do is is go deep on moments that were public and go deep on moments that weren't public. And uh, the, uh, the, the Tuesday night uh, uh, champion's dinner would be another example. Uh, and try to bring the reader in. I think that's what we try to do as reporters. Try to bring the reader to a place where we have been lucky enough to go that uh, he or she, the reader, uh, may not be, well, pro- likely is not likely enough to go and present them with oh, an interesting world. I wonder if you could run me through very briefly some of the people that you talked to for this book. Well, j- just that that comes to mind uh, quickly now would be, uh, you know, in a, a person who wouldn't be well-known would be someone like Bernhard Langer's caddy, uh, Terry Holt. Uh, people who have watched uh, Tiger his whole life, as Nick Faldo and Johnny Miller have. I was I was really astounded at Faldo in particular, uh, how much he cared and how much he knew and how much he observed about Tiger. But it's not surprising when you think that uh, that Tiger won that first Masters in 1997, and that Faldo was the defending champion, and he put the the jacket on on Tiger's shoulders. And, and that was getting near the end uh, for Faldo and for Greg Norman, that, that whole generation, really, in, in a way. And he's seen everything that followed after that. Johnny Miller was there, you know, covering U.S. Amateurs. He saw the whole thing unfold. Uh, another person that people wouldn't know, Bobby Jones has a grandson who's a psychologist. His name is Bob Jones as well, Dr. Bob Jones. And uh, so he sees Tiger, he's seen Tiger's whole career unfold through the prism of his own experience and his own life, and also, you know, being a psychologist, being a therapist, interested in, in the in um, the human equation, uh, what it means to be a human being, but also being really knowledgeable about his grandfather's experience. Uh, so uh, there, there was a there's a, a man from Uganda named James Chikabasa, who uh, is now a uh, an assistant pro at a club where. Uh, where, where Tiger grew up playing, uh, the Dad Miller Golf Course in Orange County. So people from all sorts of different walks of life uh, that had an insight that was new to me and I hope new to a reader uh, that would try to explain uh, Tiger. Finally, is there any one thing that you would want readers to take away or really any way that you think readers should begin to understand Tiger Woods? Well, I, that's great, Dylan. I think the this sounds grandiose, and uh, and maybe what I'm saying is not true, but I hope it's true. I think you look at Tiger Woods's life, and you look at this game that we love, and you realize how much free will we all have. How much to to what degree we can control our own destiny. 
you, you can work whatever it is that you're doing. You can, if you choose to, you can work harder on it. You can choose to work harder on your relationships. You can choose. You can choose to try to understand yourself and others more. I think Tiger has done that in his own life. I don't think there's any realistic expectation that any person can become Tiger Woods. I don't believe that thing is, oh, if you dream it, it will become true. I think the lesson of Tiger Woods is, what are you going to do in your own life to dig deep to get better at something? Because Tiger Woods has always been about trying to get better. And when he can't get better, at least try to hold on to what he has for as long as he can, which is, I think, really what he's doing right now. Don't never give up. It's just, that's a given. You always fight. And that just, giving up's never an equation. You know, focused on that and just keep fighting. That's just part of the deal. We wake up every morning and there's always challenges in front of us and keep fighting and keep getting through. Uh, and I think that's a great place to leave it. Michael, thank, thank you so much for Dylan, joining thanks. us. for your sympathetic reading of the book. <laughs> that's The Second Life of Tiger Woods by Michael Bamberger. Thanks, Don. That's going to do it for this week's edition of The Drop Zone. This episode was produced by Lee Finer. Thanks, Lee. Next week, we're back with a story from Augusta National, a tale of life and death at Amen Corner. You can find that right here on The Drop Zone.